Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of The Random People Show. I'm your host, Sina Canada, and this show is brought to you by the Human Picture Initiative. You can learn more about the Human Picture Initiative at hpimedia.com. In this next episode, we are still in Los Angeles. Actually, you're going to hear several episodes from LA pre-COVID because I was out there working on pre-production for a documentary project. When the shutdown happened, the whole project was shelved, but I had some great interviews, and so I've decided to share some of those here at RPS. One of those interviews was Carrie Morrison. Carrie and I sat down for this particular conversation at her home in Hollywood on March 6th, so it was just about a week before the official shutdown in LA. So you won't actually hear us discuss her work in relation to the current environment that we're living in. However, we do a follow-up conversation over Zoom in May, and you can hear that in the Carrie Morrison follow-up episode. I'm going to let you hear Carrie talk about her work rather than read a big bio, but I am certain after this you are most likely going to want to follow up and learn more about what she's doing. You can do that via her organization's website. The org is Heart Forward, and the website is heartforwardla.com. You can also check out her blog where she chronicles her experiences and just writes about some pretty fascinating topics. And I am positive I am going to butcher the name of this or the pronunciation of this, but it's acolienza.us, and I'm going to spell that for you. A-C-C-O-G-L-I-E-N-Z-A dot U-S. It's an Italian word that means hospitality, and you are about to find out why that makes a lot of sense. Carrie has done and continues to do fascinating, challenging work in the field of community-based mental health and homelessness, and I am just going to leave you with the tagline for her org, transforming the American mental health system through radical hospitality. Like I said, thank you so much for making the time for this. I know it was a little out of the blue, and I'm so grateful to Helmi for... Yeah, connecting us. Yeah. No, I trust her instincts, and looking at your website, it looks like you do beautiful things, so I'm honored. Oh, thank you. Well, I want to dive right in and talk about the work, but prior to that, if you could just give me a little background where you come from and why you got into this work to begin with. Okay, that's... um, it's interesting because I'm, I'm in a space right now where when I meet with people, or even when I met with people in Italy, they would assume that I was a psychiatrist, or in Italian it's dottoressa, you know, dottoressa. No, I am not the dottoressa. I managed a business improvement district on Hollywood Boulevard. So I came out of the business community. Um, A business improvement district in America, they're all over the place, and in most cities in America will have what we call a BID to take care of the downtown area. So I was originally hired back in 1996 when Hollywood was just a shadow of its current self. Uh, It was barely functioning. Uh, It had been uh, not only experiencing just the general economic downturn that downtowns in America had gone through with the suburbanization of America and, you know, stores and people moved to the suburbs. So downtowns were suffering. And 
in the 90s, there was a movement to, to, to begin to kind of revitalize the downtowns and to bring new life back. Hollywood in particular was really devastated through a combination of the, the economy, the civil unrest in 1992 in Los Angeles, which actually had some pretty significant impacts in the core of Hollywood, the Northridge earthquake in 1994, which actually created buildings that had either fallen down or were substandard or wrapped in yellow tape. And then um, the county was uh, tunneling a subway right down the middle of Hollywood Boulevard. And that, of course, had huge negative impacts on the stores because they had to put up fences to protect people from the, the construction. So under that scenario, they formed a business improvement district um, in the core part of Hollywood that still had some life to it, like the Chinese Theater and the Roosevelt Hotel and the El Capitan Theater. So that's where it started. I managed a bid. And uh, over the course of, you know, the next... Can I ask you a question about mm -hmm. that real quick? Mm -hmm. I'm scoot my chair over. Uh, were you already, I mean, were you a business owner? Why were you interested in managing a bid? So I, going back a little bit, for, I mean, I, I, my, my education and my interest was always in public policy, uh, public affairs, public policy. So after college, I had a, an internship um, with uh, Coro. Coro is a public affairs leadership internship in not only Los Angeles, but other cities in America. It was a wonderful deep dive into the public affairs world over nine months. And after Coro, I went to work for the California Association of Realtors, which is a trade association. I was very interested in housing and housing policy. So I worked for the California Association of Realtors for 14 years. But actually, my pivot point where I made a conscious decision that I wanted to get out of an office and into the trenches was the best way I could describe it, was, was the LA riots in 1992. I remember our building, which was near Wilshire and um, Vermont, uh, that whole neighborhood w was uh, right on the brink of Koreatown. And there was just incredible unrest and fires and looting right in, in the neighborhood of our office. I remember going home for a couple of days, kind of watching, I lived in the South Bay, watching this um, civil unrest overcome our city. And I was blown away that there was this much discord in Los Angeles, that somehow I was not aware of that. And how could I have been immune to that? And um, I, I kind of made the decision shortly thereafter that when it was the right time, I wanted to get into a job where I was actually in the trenches, like doing the work at the street level. And when this opportunity surfaced in 1996 to manage this brand new business improvement district that had just been formed, the property owners at that moment had taken advantage of a new state law that allowed property owners to form a bid, which means they have to, they define the boundaries, they define the budget, they define what their assessment is going to be. So it's like a self-taxing entity. And by virtue of agreeing to assess themselves, they then have control over the money. And it's run by a nonprofit organization, even though the money comes on the tax bill. So my, I was, it was so serendipitous that they hired me. Um, I almost think Providential, um, they only ran the ad in the Wall Street Journal once, and I happened to see it. And I th think what they, what they found appealing was 
I came out of the, a real estate trade association, so I had some understanding of real estate. And also, I was a, uh, a clean slate in Hollywood. Hollywood was very political. There were a lot of politics involved with forming the bid, and I was an unknown person who could come in with no baggage. So that was how that job began. So I, I had to report to a board of directors of property owners. And, you know, for the next, I would say, 10 years, homelessness was not even on my radar there. Our job was to keep things clean and safe. So we cleaned the sidewalks and we trimmed the trees and picked up trash every day and painted out graffiti. And we also did have a security patrol who would walk the area to provide an additional level of security so people would feel safe coming to Hollywood. And over those that 10 years, the bid expanded. Um, we, we added more, more uh, property owners to, to, to grow the bid. And it was probably around 2005, 2006 that the homelessness situation really started to, to make a more significant impact in, in the core part of Hollywood. So prior to that, you didn't really see much homelessness in Hollywood? Very little, very little, very little. Yeah. I didn't realize it was so, but yeah, continue yeah. on. No, nothing, it was nothing like it is today. We would go back to that time in a heartbeat. Um, if you saw people, they might be huddled in a doorway or on a bus bench, but it wasn't, there were no tents. There was, um, it was, it was not ubiquitous. It was more kind of, what would the word be, um, incidental. Right, but a lot of homeless youth. Hollywood has always been a magnet for young people all across America who might come searching for whatever. But we didn't have like the drug issues as we as we do now. It was it was different. So it started to kind of become more present and visible. I would say in the mid, whatever we call the turn of the century, you know, two thousand five, two thousand six, and I started to. Um, you know, try to ascertain like who's who's supposed to be in charge of this. Is it the government? Is it the faith community? The nonprofits? Because I, I I was told by my board this is not our job. This is not why we formed this bid. This is not what you should be involved in. But uh, the more I <laughs> looked into it, it just did not appear as though there was any clear sense of accountability. And I recall it was. <clears throat> It was about that, it was probably about 2006, 2007, that the Community Redevelopment Agency wanted to um, build the first permanent supportive housing in Hollywood, right near Gower in Hollywood. They were going to buy a piece of land that was owned by a church and then convert it into homeless housing, first of its kind in Hollywood. And the neighborhoods went ballistic, absolutely ballistic. There was a town hall that was just um, overwhelming emotions from people living in the hills about, you know, drug dealers and child molesters and criminals are going to live in this housing. And it was mind-boggling how misinformed people were. So a small group of us realizing that this was actually a good thing for Hollywood and we needed it, we, we created a coalition then. It was called Hollywood Forward, and it standed for four WRD, four walls, a roof, and a door. So Hollywood Forward is like, we need housing for these people, and they're here in our community. We, we really should provide the housing for them. So we started to 
educate people about homelessness. You know, who was homeless in our community? We, we took, I remember, a bus trip to go visit permanent supportive housing in other parts of LA to see how nice it was and to be welcomed into people's apartments and to see where they lived and to start to kind of calm some of the community leaders down that this was not, I used to do like speeches about this where I would take a picture of Three Mile Island, the nuclear power plant, and I said, this is how people perceived the first permanent supportive housing project in Hollywood as if, as if we were installing a, a nuclear power plant at the corner of Hollywood and Gower. But no, in fact, that was not the case, but we had to kind of disabuse them of that notion. So that was, that proved fruitful. That project got built, you know, others came along. We built this coalition. We began to um, equip ourselves to, um, I remember at that time, actually, one of the conclusions I came to was that because Los Angeles was so big and nobody felt like they were in charge, that we should maybe just define a very specific part in Hollywood that for which we would take a, a accountability. So the the we we agreed that it would be Franklin, La Brea, uh, Santa Monica, and Western, and and that rectangle became our we're going to be accountable for this portion of of Los Angeles. People don't realize that Hollywood is not its own city. It's just a neighborhood. And so I remember we fanned out, it's probably about 2008, and we, one night we counted every person we could find in that rectangle. And that would be like, that. Will, we will be accountable for these people. And it was 500 people. So, okay, well, that's, that's, a, that's a number that is far more easier to digest than the tens of thousands that the county was saying was homeless even at that time. But even in your education of your neighborhood, because you can educate people all day long, but if they're not willing, it sounds like they were willing to hear you if you got the project built. Well, what I found is that there were those who could be educated and those who did not want to learn. And we, we tried to surround those that would not be willing to learn and move on. So I, it's a, a phrase I love that I learned from somebody who worked in this space many years ago, develop the coalition of the willing so we created the coalition of the willing. So you would find the people who are willing to keep moving forward and just thank and dismiss those who were not going to um, participate. Can't change their mind. Maybe they'll come around at some point. I, I kind of personally at that point on my own personal journey, uh, as I was learning more about who was homeless in Hollywood, I would, I would invite people to come with me to meet with you know, people who are homeless. I would invite business leaders to participate in the homeless count, for example, that, that the county would do every two years, just to um, provide for them experiences to shatter whatever stereotypes or even fears that they had. So um, in 2010, our little coalition did um, something that was a national movement at that, at that time started by a group in New York called Common Ground, and it was a, a homeless registry. And so the idea was to go out um, in the middle of the night, um, three o'clock in the morning for three nights in a row. This was the methodology, which is insane, but we all did it. And in that area that we had defined, you would go out and you would interview people, you would take their picture, you would give them a Subway $5 gift card, and the, the plan was to create a vulnerability index where 
based on a score, the people who are the most vulnerable would be placed at the top of the list. And these are the people that you would help first. Because there was, I think, a growing awareness in America that what was happening is there was creaming going on. It'd be easier to help people who were recently homeless, not chronically homeless, not mentally ill, not suffering from you know, trauma. And, and yet the higher hanging fruit was just marginalized and left on the street. So this vulnerability index was intended to create a prioritized list. And then as a community, you would work to house the most vulnerable first. So we did this homeless registry exercise over three nights, and I organized that. And it was grueling, but it was, inc- it was probably the pivot point for our um, coalition and for Hollywood, because what the homeless registry did is it eliminated the anonymity of the people who were out on the street, because now we had their pictures, we had their stories, we had their vulnerability scores. And I specifically made sure that I had a, a good number of, of the business community participate in that three-night exercise so that they would see this for themselves. And out of that exercise, I, I saw hearts melt. And, and um, I remember one night in particular, um, I was walking with a restaurant owner, Fabio, and he and I were a team, and we were assigned to a very specific um, like census tract in Hollywood, and we, were, we went down into the subway, and we uh, interviewed people who were living down in the subway at Hollywood and Highland. This is at 3 or 4 in the morning. I had no idea that was happening, so that was amazing to see that. And then I remember we um, found a guy um, sleeping near the Roosevelt Hotel, and Fabio was so I- affected by how cold it was that night that he promised the next night he was going to bring this guy a jacket. And uh, so we did the interview with him. And then we kept walking, we had to walk down the periphery of, of Hollywood High School, and we didn't find anyone else. And we were kind of disappointed because we wanted to meet someone else. We, we didn't want to return, you know, I think we would finish at 5.30 or 6 in the morning empty-handed. And we came up uh, Highland, and there in front of Hollywood High School was this man wearing a pink um, jacket, <laughs> I have a picture of it, slumped. Uh, sleeping, sitting up on this bus bench. And we, we sat down next to him and we interviewed him and took his picture. His name was Helmet. He was 80 years old. And Helmet is such a great story because um, we found out that he had been evicted from his apartment, which was just half a mile away up on Franklin. And he had been living on that bus bench for nine months. So he became the number one vulnerable person on our list. And his is a whole great story. We could talk all afternoon about that. But just, you know, those three instances with Fabio, the next night he came back and he gave that guy a jacket and Fabio became a huge champion for whatever we needed to do to help people in Hollywood. And that story played out with a bunch of people. So I was slowly but surely building the coalition of the willing um, as much as I could. What is it about connecting people with the homeless and their stories and their faces and their names that shifts those hearts? Yeah, it well, it, it shifted my heart to like I, I prior to that um, homeless registry experience, I had to go through that own experience for myself. I was, as I tell the story, I was afraid of homeless people. I it just they seemed unpredictable and you know didn't know what how to approach. 
And I decided I needed to conquer my own kind of fear and, um, and disabuse my own notions or stereotypes. So I have a few stories on that one. One in particular, I was involved with helping a, uh, a local, what they call Connect Day, which is a, a day-long kind of like an expo, almost like for people who are homeless, where they can come in and they can meet with a dentist and they can get a driver's, not a driver's license, a voter ID card, and they can um, have a, a medical checkup. So it's like a, it's like a, like a fair, basically. And I volunteered for this Connect Day and, and agreed to sit in the, um, the dining area to hand out food to people as they were moving through these appointments. So I kind of made it my own personal mission that day to try to talk to as many people as possible, find out where they were from, when they became homeless, and make an assessment on my own as to whether or not they were employable. Because, you know, the notion was, oh, people are, they should pull themselves up by their bootstraps, yada, yada, yada. And in my own little personal story that, uh, research that day, I probably captured 12 or 13 stories I remember my epiphany was that out of that whole group, maybe two or three were employable. The rest had other serious kind of traumatic issues, physical disabilities, mental disabilities, uh, substance abuse disabilities. Um, and that just kind of blew my mind. It started to open my eyes to how complicated this was. And um, so I could then start to describe that to people, say, you know, um, you, you'd be surprised how, how complicated their life stories are. And this is not going to be an easy fix. And people need a lot of support. Um, I made some of my own kind of personal mistakes in trying to overly help people that I, I couldn't help. I would try to put people up in hotels. I would try to buy them clothes for a job interview. And, and then they would flake out on me. One young man stole from me. So I I had to go through my own personal journey of like, I cannot help these people individually. So like, what is it that is systemic that is, is the answer here? And that's a journey I think we all kind of need to go through. Um, personally, in, in, with respect to people with mental illness, um, my journey there started in 2008 where I needed, to, I needed to kind of conquer my fear of people who were severely mentally ill living in Hollywood because that was really becoming more apparent as well for whatever reason, I don't know. And so I, um, I remember I was going to, I resolved to approach this man who I'd seen sitting for months and months on a bus bench at um, Cahuenga in Hollywood. And he'd always be rocking back and forth on the bus bench, sometimes his pants would be down around his ankles. He he, it looked like he hadn't bathed in, in months, if not a year. His hair was all in dreadlocks. He was very scary and smelly. And I thought, okay, well, I'm, I'm just gonna try to talk to him. And I remember the first day I sat down and and uh, he was rocking back and forth on the bench, and I my heart was beating, and I said. Hi, like, my name is Carrie. What is your name? And he he looked at me, you know, and and he he, I, he whatever his response was, it wasn't really um, I couldn't understand. It wasn't audible. It wasn't I couldn't understand it. And I said it again, and and I felt well. That was enough. I was going to come back the next day and do it again. 
So I came back, came back, and finally I got his name. His name was Tori. And um, he began to, when I would come back, he would remember my name. And so it just struck me that the power of a name is so important. Um, that kind of became my mantra in, in approaching people in the future. But my journey with him, which continues to this day, was one of um, building that sense of familiarity and trust with him so that he would um, warm up to me and I would go and sit and talk with him and he would tell fantastical stories about how he was a movie producer at one time and, um, and that or his whole family had gone with Jim Jones to Guyana and they all drank the Kool-Aid and every day was a different story and I was just, I didn't know much about schizophrenia, I didn't understand delusions, but I was like, wow, is any of this true, right? So I remember I enlisted the help of people in the social services world, and I said, we got to help this guy get a shower. <clears throat> he really needs a shower. And so we made a plan, um, and I always just, in any of these stories, this wasn't just me. I always had people I could call on who were social workers or had access to resources. <clears throat> and so we made a plan, and so I remember this was in April of 2008, that on this particular Wednesday, we were going to take Tori to get a shower. And the deal was that we would pick him up, we would get him a hamburger, we would get him cigarettes, we would take him to this local shelter to have a shower, we would give him clean clothes, and we would return him back to the place we picked him up. That was the deal, because he insisted on that. And so I remember for about a week prior to what I would call D-Day or shower day, I would say, what are we doing next Wednesday? Tell me again exactly what's going to happen. What time am I picking you up? What's the deal? And he would say, you're going to give me a hamburger. We're going to have cigarettes. I'm going to take a shower, but I'm coming back. I said, okay, okay. So, I'll, and then it was, I'll see you tomorrow. And then that day, my friends from Path showed up in the van. We got him his hamburger. We had the cigarettes. I remember... The van smelled so bad. Um, it was, all the windows were open. It was like, oh my goodness. We got him to the path shelter. He took a long shower. We had all clean clothes for him, put everything back on, all these new clothes. And, um, and the food was being served at the shelter. It was, you could smell it. And there were 65 beds there. And we said, are you sure you don't want to stay here? Nope. So we took him all the way back. And that was part of the trust building, which is a long story also. Um, uh, I went through a lot of, a lot of things with Tori, a lot of, a lot of journeys. His, his, his kind of journey through the mental health system informed a lot of my understanding about how broken it is. But that is where it started. And what year was that? 2008. I bet you have so many individual stories, but I think it's those individual stories that really have the weight and the power, like you said, to open hearts and minds. 2008, you have a personal journey with an individual. Lots of people have personal stories and, and personal experiences with people, but it doesn't always catalyze a move like you made. Tell me about that. Yeah, I I, I don't know what, I, I you know, I kind of feel like, this is how I feel about it. I feel like, um, 
you know, they always say there's a hole in our heart for, uh, our heart breaks for what breaks God's heart. I believe that. And I also believe that if we were to let our hearts be broken for everything in this world, we would just couldn't get up out of bed in the morning. I am so glad there are people who have a heart for foster kids, and there's other people who have a heart for, you know, illiteracy, and other people who have a heart for refugees, and you know, you name it. If we woke up and let our heart break for everything that's wrong in this world, we'd be paralyzed. So for some reason, I feel like this has been my calling, actually, people with mental illness, um, because my journey has been kind of so unique in that respect. So that's, that's how I process it. It is, um, I always joke, like, if you told me I had to sit in a room with 10 children, I would go crazy. I was never really called to work with children. <laughs> I had children, they turned out fine. <laughs> but you put me in a room with, you know, 10 people, you know, kind of dealing with their, their mental illness and, and struggling, I'm, I'm happy. I'm just, I love it. I, I just love to engage and to learn and to be in relationship with people. I can't explain it. So, so even though I had to kind of conquer my trepidation and my lack of understanding, it became a journey that I just um, walked into. So kind of like moving forward, um, the situation is, is, you know, slowly but surely growing more challenging in Hollywood and Los Angeles. I'm starting to kind of speak up on this issue. I'm becoming kind of a reluctant expert in this space. Um, I'm invited to sit in on task forces or the mayor appointed me to the LASA Commission, which is the Los Angeles Homeless Services Authority. Um, you know, we have, I'm on the board of a small nonprofit in Hollywood. So I'm seeing homeless policy and processes at the very local level in terms of our local nonprofit all the way up to the county and regional level, level serving on the LASA Commission. So um, three years after we did that homeless registry and we, we created the, the by name list of people who are vulnerable, we came together as a group 2013 and kind of did a pulse check, like, how are we doing? You know, there's still a lot of homeless people here, but we had made progress. We had, because we had done the registry, we, we had attracted resources into Hollywood. We had attracted some philanthropy. We had attracted some county resources, some additional housing. So we were making progress, but there was this small co cohort of people who were still homeless and still, some of them sitting in the same corner in the same alley that they had been in for decades. And at our little retreat, we, we, uh, we did a whiteboard session, like, how do we help those people? Like, they seem to be marginalized outside of any system right now. They're very severely mentally ill. Um, and so we decided to create a top 10 list, like, who are the top 10 people that we we're most concerned about? And there was complete consensus on that. You know, we, 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 we did the names. And then we added four more because we're like, we got to add this person, we got to add this person. So that became the Hollywood Top 14. Um, the Hollywood Top 14 then became our, our go-to list, uh, people with severe mental illness who are highly vulnerable, likely to die on the streets unless we did something to help them. And so that is where all my learning happened um, with respect to how the mental health system, 
did not exist to help these people and that every possible thing we could think of to get them hospitalized or um, seek a conservatorship, which would be an involuntary hospitalization, or, or even to coax and prod people into housing that nothing worked. So um, real quick, dive into that just a little bit and tell me the things that you learned the most from what were some of the, you named a few, but what, what was it you were doing that really educated you on that? So one of the first people that we tried to help was a, was a young man who had been homeless in Hollywood for 12 years and he had no hands. And because he had no hands, he was mostly barefoot all the time. His pants were falling down. Um, he was highly delusional. There were, um, uh, he was scary. He, uh, he, he was um, basically being fed by the neighborhood. People would give him food and water because he had no way to fend for himself. So he was number one on our list. Like, how are we gonna help this guy? And what's interesting is that as I find as we um, bumbled into this methodology, we hit upon very human and very common sense ways to help people that our system disallows. So for example, as a group, we would like, let's figure out everything we know about him, his name, his birthday, his, um, his, um, uh, where he um, gets his food, where does he sleep, who takes care of him, his family, can we find his family? Um, and so we would, it was almost like people had different puzzle pieces. We, we uh, were able to find out a little bit about his, his, his background, where his family might be. Um, we had one woman who um, he really liked. Um, she was very pretty, she was very sweet. She would bring him sandwiches and just sit on the sidewalk with him and rub his back. And um, so she had a sense of trust with him. But he, was, he, had, he had been homeless for so long that if anyone tried to approach him or help him, he would just scamper away, he would run away. Um, we also found out that he um, had had a lot of encounters with the police in Santa Monica because of trespassing. He would take the bus apparently to Santa Monica and so they joined our team. And we started to put together a story like of how long he'd been out there, how many times he'd been hospitalized to the best of our ability to figure it out, how many times he'd been arrested, the fact that he was incapable of taking care of himself. And um, we called it a dossier. It was like a composite case study to the best of our ability without having a lot of official information that we would want to get in front of a doctor at the hospital or in front of a judge. Our uh, opinion was that he needed to be involuntarily hospitalized and treated to change the trajectory of his life. You know, he, he, was, he was going nowhere in this, in this space. So that was the plan. And, and when you ask, like, what are the things that would typically happen? We would see people who would be picked up on what's called a 5150, danger to self or others. And they would be, that's supposed to lead to a 72 hour hold in a emergency room, and then possibly a longer hold um, for further observation and treatment to, to get someone to a place of stabilization. But time and time again, what we were learning is that people would be re released from the emergency room, sometimes within hours. Sometimes they still had their hospital bracelet on. And these, these hospitalizations would happen over and over and over again, which as you can imagine is incredibly traumatic 
because you're either taken in a police car or strapped to a gurney with a paramedic, and there's you're constantly released. Very few people stayed for treatment. So what was it about the system that was not feeling any accountability to um, providing a longer-term treatment plan for folks? We would document that. We would, we would, and and even though we were helping this one individual, we were also beginning to simultaneously help a few others and starting to keep keep those records. And 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 it was just mind-boggling because no one would ever had ever kept track of this stuff before. No one's keeping track of this stuff because of the responsibility question. Because of the responsibility question, no one is responsible for these people, and every database is separate. So if you've pinged into the local ER database that's different than what the police database might be. It might be different than what the mental health database might be. So there's no way to get a composite picture that would somehow signal a red alert that this person is just pinging through our systems to, to no end, to no, to no end. So I remember the day that we had to help this person. It was a day we had everything lined up. Someone had made sure that the, the doctor at the ER was going to hold him for longer, and they had got the dossier in front of him so he could see that, that this needs to come to an end. We need, we need to be in a sustainable um, approach for this young man. And the way we help people with mental illness in America is we have to get them arrested. So we waited for, because this would be a common thing, him to run into traffic. And um, our bid security team who was watching him called the police. Uh, the police detained him. Then they had to wait for the SMART team, which is the uh, mental evaluation unit. And I have a picture of him kneeling on the ground uh, with his hands behind his, his back. And of course, since he doesn't have hands, there were zip ties holding his stubs together. And everyone's standing around him, and he's completely confused because this is how we help people with mental illness in America. We arrest them. Then he gets hauled to an emergency room. And, you know, this story could go on for days as well, but what I was learned, that it was just heartbreaking. It was like in my heart I was thinking, this is going to help you. This is the only way we can think of helping you right now. This is going to lead to a better thing. Um, he, he, he did manage to make it through the system. We did manage to um, seek a conservatorship which is involuntary hospitalization and treatment. And, um, and even then, the person who I had told you about, who was the, the one with whom he had a relationship, she found out which hospital he was placed in while he was, being, uh, while he was waiting to be um, placed in, in what they call an IMD, an Institute for Mental Disease. And she told the hospital, she'd go visit him, please, don't let him be released without me knowing where he's going so we can stay connected with him. Because again, in our mental health system, you're completely alone. And because of HIPAA, privacy laws, and other entanglements, you could end up in Timbuktu and nobody will ever know that you're there. And so therefore, uh, again, that lack of, of kind of a through line of accountability was so evident. So, um, I had reached out to her and said, hey, I want to go visit him. Um, and so we went to that hospital and they said, oh, he was discharged. Where was he discharged to? We can't tell you. So 
she worked some back channels in the county, found out where he was discharged to. And we, the following weekend, drove 60 miles to the farther edges of LA County to an IMD, and there he was, a completely different human being. I was, I'll never forget seeing him clean, haircut, shoes on, clothes on, fed. And when he saw her, he was, he asked her, what took you so long to find me? So he had been out there for four months um, without anyone contacting him, including he had not yet met with his public guardian. So he had no money. He had no money to buy snacks. And had we not pulled back channels to find out where he was, like, and I was like, how often does this happen? Probably a lot, right? So um, I remember I, I was just, I, my jaw was dropping at this life transformation for a person who had been so scary and so um, completely impossible to approach on Hollywood Boulevard. And as we sat talking to him, I said, you know, I am so excited to meet you. I've, I've seen you for 10 years in Hollywood. I, every, every time I try to come talk to you, you wouldn't talk to me. And, and he goes, I'm so sorry I didn't talk to you. I'm like, oh no, it's totally okay. Um, that story, you know, he, what people need to understand about involuntary hospitalization and, and, and the county conservatorship, you don't stay under conservatorship forever. It's until you're stabilized and your medication is stabilized and the psychiatrist has, you know, got you on a plan. Um, he, he moved out of the IMD. He moved into a board and care. Um, I still visit him to this day. He is now working on his GED. He is reconnected with his father. Um, his life is, is completely different. So if anyone ever wants to have an argument with me about whether or not sometimes it makes sense to actually conserve someone, bring it on. The scary bit is a lot of times folks don't understand they're A, just as scared, but a lot of times they're completely confused. They right. have no idea why you're scared. Right. They have no idea why you're responding the way you are. Right. Especially it seems with bipolar. That's the, what I've heard from stories because, yeah, they, they have that episode and they're in a whole different universe, basically. So in learning all of these deficiencies and these gaps that we have, do you see that there's actually a path for healing that system? <sighs> Such a great question. Well, that kind of, that's what we want to do in the pilot uh, because I believe the system is so broken, it's not worth fixing. And if we do this right in LA County with what we're hoping to do with this pilot, we're set aside the existing system and truly pilot something entirely different that creates accountability, you know? There should be a consistent person or you should be attached to a team who will always know where you are. There will always be a familiar face. They will not lose track of you. If you end up in the hospital, if you end up on an airplane flying somewhere, if you end up in jail, that there's someone who's always knowing where you are that that system accountability is mandatory because otherwise people are just left to fend for themselves and 
I, I, I'm speechless. There's just no, there's no words for how that makes no sense. No sense. But how, the, the obvious question is, who pays for it? Who pays for a system like that? I don't think it has to be that expensive. Um, well, for one thing, we need to bring families back into the system. We have completely in America marginalized families and friends from being in connection with a person with mental illness in the name of privacy, I think, or in the name of maybe it's just not convenient to have to be in communication with people. So um, in the case, for example, of, of my, my friend who I just told you the story about, in living in his board and care, he, um, he's involved in what they call a full service partnership, which is a high level of case management. And I'm on the list of, of, of approved people to talk about my friend. And one day he told me, oh, they're going to graduate me from the full service partnership. I said, what does that mean? I don't know. I, I, I won't have that case manager anymore. And I called the agency and I had to eventually get to a supervisor for someone to talk to me. Now, I should have been part of the team having a conversation about what his options were before they made a unilateral decision about whether or not he was at a place where he needed a less intense level of case management. I am his person. You know, I'm the only person in the city who is looking out for him. So um, I should be part of that team. And I would venture to say that um, if we were to inculcate that into our system, so parents, siblings, uncles, aunts, grandfathers, um, friends could be part of the team so that so that there is someone you have to talk to that would not be that hard to do but it's inconvenient and the, and the system will throw up a HIPAA shield that it's somehow an invasion of privacy that's I, that's stuff that we run into too is at what point is it their decision and who decides that it's no longer their decision when they're an adult and I don't know the answer to that because I've, I've gone through this with four different mm -hmm. friends. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I think the, the culture of the American system is just to not appreciate that the support system exists or could exist. And so the default is that, therefore, it is to be marginalized. Now, you know, a person with a mental illness might say, I no longer want any, I, I denounce everyone I've ever said was a support. I don't want anyone in my family. That can happen. But the converse can also happen too. Like, I have a trusted person who I would like to be walking alongside me on this, and I'm going to sign a paper, and I'm going to sign a waiver, and, you know, an advanced directive, or there's ways to do it. But the, the system defaults to keeping that person in a singular relationship only with the agency or the caseworker and, and misses the opportunity to help that person stay connected to others. So that's kind of like an American cultural ethos that I think we have to change. So let's bridge now what you discovered and why you started the search to find a better model. So, you know, we learned a lot through the Hollywood Top 14. We kept these interesting case studies showing about constant system breakdown. Um, and people, three people died on that list. And some people, you know, years went by, we still were not able to help them. They were still out on the street. So I'm in my job managing the bid, and um, 
I, I hear about this opportunity to apply for a Stanton Fellowship with the Durfee Foundation here in Los Angeles. And it's like this amazing, I'd never heard about it before, but someone approached me and said, you really should maybe consider seeking the fellowship to further delve into what you're learning about the mental health system through the, the top 14 case studies. So I posed an inquiry. The, the way the Stanton works is that you stay in your job for two years. They provide a fellowship grant that will allow you to leave your job for a total of three months over two years, ideally in two-week increments because they really want you to get away. And that will reimburse your employer. And then the remaining funds can be used for travel, for research, for conferences, books, whatever. It's, it's an amazing privilege and honor. And so I wrote an inquiry about the Hollywood Top 14, and it basically was, why is it so hard to help the most severely mentally ill people move off the streets? And what is amazing about their approach is that they, they don't expect any deliverable at the end of the two years. They really want you to just do your deepest dive and to not cling to any answers too soon. That it's, it's kind of like a... a um, an, an ever-widening inquiry, and, and they constantly are stressing, like, don't come to an answer too soon, keep pushing, keep, keep, your, keep your eyes open to bigger horizons, um, look for answers in unsuspecting places, go anywhere in the world, you know, to help you with your inquiry. It's mind-blowingly brilliant. That's amazing. Yes. So in the first year, I, I, I was awarded the Stanton Fellowship, which was amazing. I remember at the, at the awards ceremony when they gave me five minutes to describe what I was going to do with my two-year fellowship. I was like, how do, I, how do I condense this? And as I was driving to the ceremony, I stopped at Staples and I picked up a rubber band ball. And <clears throat> I said, this is what my fellowship is going to be about. I do believe that inside this rubber band ball there is a person and this person with severe mental illness is constrained by so many rubber bands that represent all the laws and regulations and rules and uh, procedures that keep us from actually getting to the person inside. So I want to find out how do we, you know, break open this rubber band ball and get to the person in my, in my Stanton journey. And that actually became a great metaphor. <laughs> That's so good. Yeah. Um, so for the first year, I spent the year learning about how did the American mental health system get to this space. I read all the books. I studied. It's like, oh, okay, I see. We, we closed our state hospitals in this country in the 70s, but we never created the community care system that was promised. We, we, we just, federal government, you know, backed out, and state governments did not pick up the slack. And slowly but surely, as that was evolving, then we start to see more homelessness and more people in jails and, you know, this. So the first year I, I got it and I tried to look in the United States for who's doing it better. And I found little bright spots in different cities that I went to, but I didn't, I didn't, I didn't find the Holy Grail. So I was encouraged to, to visit two places. One was Giel, Belgium, where um, they have a really innovative system there where people with mental illness are fostered in private homes. And there's a long story as to why that evolved there. 
Um, but then I was told about Trieste, Italy, and had never heard of Trieste, and I planned the trip to Europe primarily to go to Giel, and Trieste was kind of the afterthought. But as I was, you know, preparing and flying there and on long train rides to get there, it's not easy to get there, I was reading about what had happened in Trieste, and uh, Dr. Franco Basaglia was this visionary psychiatrist who really believed in closing the asylum in Trieste, but also creating the community system of care that we never had. So before I got there, I learned about how they divided up their city into four quadrants, and there was a community mental health center in each of the four quadrants of the city, and that community mental health center had full and complete accountability for the people with mental illness living in their catchment area. And um, uh, that there was a, a sense of, um, of community inclusion and a belief in social recovery, that social recovery is far more therapeutic than any kind of psychiatric or medical interaction, that people recover, that social recovery is therapeutic. I read everything as I was getting there, and, um, and I, I remember the, the weekend, I, I came in on a Friday, and I was supposed to visit with a psychiatrist all day on that Monday, and on the weekend, I took a bus up to the, um, the grounds of the mental hospital, the asylum, uh, it's, in, it's now Park, Parco de San Giovanni. And there's a lot of buildings. It's a beautiful, huge place just outside of the city um, that over you can see the sea. And um, a lot of buildings are still boarded up, you know, that left from the asylum. But slowly but surely, other buildings are being repurposed. And I remember walking through that, that whole, the, the grounds, just imagining what it must have been like when it was an asylum with... 1,200 people living there. Uh, what I didn't realize was that the actual office for their mental health department is in one of the repurposed buildings on the asylum. So it was just kind of cool that I'd been there on a Sunday when it was extremely quiet and just kind of soaked in what it must have been like. So on that Monday, I visited with this young psychiatrist all day, Dr. Bonavigo. I visited the community mental health center. I saw this like it didn't look like a mental health center. It was very inviting and non-clinical feeling, non-institutional. I remember being struck by the fact that when you walked into the reception area, you couldn't quite tell who worked there. And who, there they, they call their clients users. There's users. It's not a good word in America, but it's their, their word. You couldn't tell who were the users and who were the staff. And there was camaraderie and Define users real quick. What did that mean there? It's their patients or their clients. Yeah. Um, in that mental health center for the community, they had six emergency beds. So that means that in the whole city of 240,000 people, in each of the four mental health centers, there's six beds. So that's only 24 beds, right, for the whole city because they have created a, a system that does not result in crisis the way it does here. Uh, then I visited the central hospital for the city where there's only six psych beds in the central hospital for the entire city and it's in an unlocked ward with no restraints. And it doesn't look like a hospital ward. It doesn't look institutional. And if you walk in, if you are brought in, you can walk out. So I, I remember 
during that day with Dr. Bonavigo, I said, you know what, I don't think your people here in Italy are as mentally ill as our people in America, because I just, I don't see it. Like, tell me like your most difficult story that you're dealing with right now. And just very quickly, I mean, he told me a story about a man who um, had lived with his mother for his whole life. He was in his 50s. She had died. He had never gone to school. He was illiterate. He had a mental illness. And the mother had passed it within the recently. And because she was gone, the house had gone to, to pot, basically. And so the neighbors started calling because of sanitation issues, trash and probably rotting food, etc. So he said, so I went out to the house. And I said, well, wait a minute. Wait, you, you went out to the house? You're the psychiatrist? You went to the house? And he looked at me and I was like, well, yeah, well, who else will go to the house? I said, oh, that would never happen in America. So you went to the house? He goes, yeah, I went to the house about 12 times because every time I went to the house, he wasn't there. And then I would leave a note because I didn't know he couldn't read. He never read the note. So finally they connected and he was not inclined to come with me. Um, so they ended up having to do something that they don't do very often, which is they get the magistrate involved. They, that was going to be an involuntary um, hospitalization because the situation was deteriorating. And so, um, but when that happens, the police stand back and he, he, he managed to get this man to come. And the man came to the community mental health center. He, he came into one of those six beds. They found the family. And as a family, working with him, they came up with a strategy. Everything about this story is wonderful. A, the psychiatrist directly in, was directly involved. The community called the community mental health center. They did not call the police. The police are the last people you would ever call for a psychiatric crisis in Trieste, Italy. They're the last people you would call. It's so traumatic. Um, they gave him enough time to you know, come along. They got the family involved. None of those things would happen here, but everything about that makes complete human sense. So, um, yeah, that at, as he told me that story, and at the end of the day, I actually kind of started to cry, and and he was he was very flummoxed. He goes, "What is wrong?" I said, "I almost wish I hadn't come here, frankly, because what you're doing here is so beautiful." And we have fallen so far into the abyss in the United States, I don't even see how we could ever bridge this chasm. I just I almost wish I didn't know about this. When I came home, um, I didn't know what to do. Like, How long were you there? Tell me about uh, the, uh, yeah. How so long so I, I, I was there for the weekend in the city, and then I spent that one day with him, and then I flew to Belgium to visit Giel, right? So I came home, and, you know, I've got five more months in my fellowship, and I'm like, I don't even know what to do with this. Like, <laughs> I feel like I've seen the promised land and no one's going to believe me. So serendipitously, about a month later, there was an announcement of an international conference in Trieste. And I thought, wow, maybe I should get some people to come back with me and see this. And I had money left in my fellowship grant, and so I asked the Durfee Foundation, like, if I could help subsidize hotel rooms or whatever, could I 
do that because I think I need to get some people who are much higher in the system than me to see this. And they said, that's a great idea. So I contacted the brand new head of the Department of Mental Health, Dr. Sharon, Dr. Jonathan Sharon. He had been in the, his job for less than a year. Uh, the Board of Supervisors had hired him to be a change agent. And I said, hey, you don't know me, but would you like to go to this conference in Trieste with me? And I really think you need to see this. And I remember his response was, he said, I've always wanted to go there. I remember learning about it in medical school. I'm in, right? I said, okay, cool. And then I contacted the head of the county mental health court, Judge Bianco. I said, do you want to come? He goes, I would love to see that. So I had two rock stars and I built a band around them. So we got the sheriff to come, the jail, the district attorney sent her mental health deputy, LAPD, NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. I had a philanthropist, I had a, had a gifted social worker, I had someone from LASA. And so the 13 of us went back to this conference in November of 2017. And I was always a little bit nervous, like, God, what if they don't see what I saw? Um, but they saw it, and everyone was super excited. And I remember we had this brainstorming session at, uh, on a Wednesday night. We'd, we'd been doing the site visits, visiting the hospital, the community mental health center. We looked at places where people were housed. We looked at their social cooperative system. We're at the conference and meeting people from all over the world who have, it's like a pilgrimage, because the World Health Organization has, says, has said this is the global best practice for community-based mental health. And I remember we had a Wednesday night um, session up in the mezzanine of the hotel, and we ordered in pizza and got some wine from the, the, from the bar downtown. And it was one of the most thrilling brainstorming sessions I've ever been in, because it was cross-disciplinary, cross you know, from law enforcement and social service and mental health, business community, etc. And I remember Dr. Sharon said, let's imagine if we could do like a protected biosphere somewhere in LA County and we could take what we saw in practice here and plant that into that biosphere. What would that look like? If What would that look like? And it was such an exciting um, brainstorming because everyone was imagining like from the criminal justice, it would look like this. And from the health section, it would look like this. And from the community section, it would look like this. And as a social worker, it would look like this. And it went on for hours. So we came home from that conference um, all feeling quite invigorated. And my fellowship came to an end. But as a group, we continued to meet monthly to imagine this this biosphere, this pilot. Um, Dr. Sharon was able to um, coordinate with the County of Los Angeles and the World Health Organization Collaborating Center a collaborating agreement between LA County and Trieste, which allowed us then to bring five of them out to see our system in um, September of 2018. So we had five visitors, um, three of which uh, were psychiatrists, uh, tour the LA County Jail, where 5,000 people are incarcerated. Many are chained to furniture. We toured Skid Row. We toured um, one of our LA County hospitals where people uh, are isolated in locked rooms with restraints sometimes. We visited um, 
this one facility called Penmar, uh, which has a huge cage built over its recreation yard, which is just a concrete slab. We visited um, with families uh, who, who shared their pain of, of not being able to help their loved ones. Uh, we visited uh, a local mental health clinic. We visited a couple nonprofits and a board and care home. We gave them the Cook's Tour. And um, I never felt more ashamed to be an American than to having been in Italy at that point twice and now having them kind of see what we cobbled together as a system. What was their response? Well, it was interesting. Um, we started off, you know, right at, at the worst with the worst possible tour, which was Skid Row the very first day. And I got to see places on Skid Row that I had never seen before because we had one of the outreach workers um, take us around. We take them through Skid Row. Um, we go into some of the organizations like the Downtown Women's Center and places that are doing heroic work. But then I remember we went to have lunch with Supervisor Sheila Kuehl, and this is their first day and first visit. And so she asked, well, what's your impression so far? And uh, Dr. Mazzina from Italy, who's running the department there, he said, you know, I was a young psychiatrist with Dr. Franco Bassalia as the asylum was, was coming to an end. And he said, I remember the smell of the asylum. It's the smell of human excrement and body odor and, and actually human decay. Because I had not smelled that odor all these years until I walked through Skid Row today. And I remember the room just kind of went, whoa. And then he said, you may think you close the asylum in America, but we just walk through an open air asylum. And the room just, it just took the air out of the room because it was seeing it through the eyes of the Italians who have created a system for 40 years that respects human dignity and sees the worth of people. And then to have them describe through that lens what they saw, I'll never forget that. So, and that was just Monday of that week. I remember in the county jail, like when you walk through the LA County Jail into the high observation housing where people are chained to furniture, they don't believe in restraints in Italy. They, it's, it's just like, we're going way backwards with, with what we're doing in the United States. So it was a powerful week to actually see our system through their eyes. And that emboldened me even further that, okay, even though it's this big chasm and I don't know how it is that we get out of this hole, we have to try something. And that really brings us to where you're at. If you want to just go ahead and give me in a nutshell, the pilot and what your what's the process like we have to do something this is what we're trying we're kind of waiting on these things so the fruit of the brainstorming through 2018 and bringing the italians out to visit with us dr sharon hired a consultant to draft a proposal for a pilot what would it look like how, how would we how do we put this into words uh, the state of California has what they call innovations funding for true innovation under the Mental Health Services Act. So he hired a, a wonderful psychologist um, who had been associated with an innovative agency in Long Beach called The Village, Dr. Dave Pallon. And he worked on, on this proposal. And we, we 
we focused it on Hollywood. The pilot would be in Hollywood because, because this is a community engagement model, frankly, because of all the work I'd been doing for 22 years, engaging the community in this area, developing the hearts and minds, finding the coalition of the willing, bringing the business community and others along on this journey, that if there was gonna be a shot at really creating a community engagement model for mental health services, Hollywood was the best candidate for that. And I was all in, like I am loaded for bear to help this. So I actually left my career and gave my board six months notice to find a replacement for me so I could be fully available to help this. So that <clears throat> proposal was actually presented to the state last May, 2019. And the proposal has a number of innovations baked into it. One of the innovations in this defined catchment area in Hollywood, which would be a, a population of about 110,000 people with maybe 4,000 people with eligible for county mental health services. One of the things that I've learned is that what prevents the American system from providing what we would call whole person care, which is meeting the needs of the person, whatever those needs are, irrespective of mental health needs, they may be housing needs, they may be family needs, they may be mobility needs, they may be health needs, the, the needs of the whole person, which is where you have to meet people if you are truly going to be in relationship with them in a service relationship. We had to uncouple the way mental health services are charged against a, a Medicaid system that requires really grueling fee-for-service, documentation, compliance, um, tightly defined increments of time delivering very targeted psychiatric type services, but leaving the whole person needs um, left to flounder. So the pilot envisioned using a per capita budget for the pilot area so that within that budget, any and all needs could be met for that person, irrespective of whether or not they might be tied to a, a Medicaid fee-for-service model. So the, the payment reform and the, the liberation, as I've heard it described, liberating staff and clinicians and social workers to provide for whatever it is that the person needs. So that's an element of this. There's a element of um, some a different, different approaches to some of the beds. So for example, we envision a, a psychiatric urgent care center in Hollywood. Right now we have nothing like this. If you're having an, an, a crisis, a 5150 type episode, you have to be hauled off to either jail or to the emergency room, it's traumatic it is not going to be a therapeutic experience. So a psychiatric urgent care is, is a, a kind of a, a room with 12 lazy boy rockers and maybe soft music and low lights, and it's just a place to kind of um, rest and calm down and be in connection with people that you trust so that the trauma is not uh, continued ad infinitum. We envision to, to lessen the impact on uh, law enforcement or paramedics as a first responder to have a roving 24-7 uh, response team with a psychiatrist and a peer worker, people with lived experience, 
have a potential to be of enormous value in this pilot because they speak the language and they can come alongside people. You know, arguably, uh, an advanced degree <laughs> does not really prepare you to come alongside people, but people with lived experience, we envision, have a great potential to be um, playing a significant role in the pilot. We imagine something that we're calling the system concierge, which is the way to keep track of people no matter where they are. So that right now is we've heard these stories where you don't know where is where is Bob? You know he disappeared. You have to start checking the inmate locator for the LA County Jail or start calling emergency rooms. But a system concierge would always know where where clients are in the system and would attach that person with a familiar face. So team-based case management, involvement of families, um, uh, and then community engagement in the sense of isolation is antithetical to recovery. And right now, as we are addressing, for example, our homeless crisis, people are being housed. And then it's like, all right, they're housed. Move on to the next person. And they are now... <laughs> in isolated apartments or maybe even in board and care homes with nothing to do, no one to connect with, no money at their disposal to go anywhere. So we imagine um, a community integration and touch points in the community in civic spaces, museums, educational institutions, coffee shops, uh, where there would be uh, opportunities to break down those isolation barriers. And then Additionally, one of the things that the Italians feel very strongly about is the right to purpose and vocation. Everyone has a right to wake up in the morning and have a sense of purpose to their day. And it's like, yeah, well, who's to argue with that? But in, in the United States, the, once we marginalize people with mental illness, whether they're homeless or whether they're living in various um, places of, of residence, they're often lonely, they don't have jobs, they don't have any purposeful uh, engagements with other friends or folks. So I'm super excited about building jobs, employment, even businesses, micro-enterprises, um, clubs and associations uh, that people would feel like, today's a day I have my art class and I am going to take the bus and I'm going to go to my art class, or today's the day I'm working on my GED and it's the day I go to LA City College to take my math class, or today's the day I go volunteer at a local park doing something. We would create purposeful opportunities for people. Um, and I'm super excited about imagining all the ways in which that, that could happen in Hollywood and then um, be an inspiration for other parts of the county. Awesome. Real quick, let's just bridge a few things. So the Italians came. Mm -hmm. Who is it that got excited? I mean, just explain for the audience, who is it that got excited enough to say, we're going to put this pilot together? Um, I credit the fact that we even have this pilot to Dr. Sharon. So Dr. Sharon, who saw it for himself. And I remember he, he's, he told our group, wow, seeing, seeing this in action, it would be hard, if not impossible, to come back to LA and manage the, the Department of Mental Health in the same way 
knowing what's possible. So I give him all the credit for pushing this rock up the, up the hill, basically um, identifying the consultant, you know, working it out with the board of supervisors to designate Hollywood as the pilot. You could have any other member of the board of supervisors say, why not Antelope Valley? Why not Pomona? Why not Seal Beach? You know, why Hollywood? And um, he, he, he identified the source of funds at the state, the innovations funds. I didn't even know that that existed. He pushed hard to get this proposal done in time to present last year. And now he's doing the heavy lifting behind the scenes because the way it works is that once the state approves the funds, then the county has to accept the funds. And that will allow for one year of planning before the pilot is launched. So even in this preparation phase before the county accepts the funds, there's still a lot of moving parts that, that he has to work through. So you're currently waiting for the fund. The funds have been there, and now you're waiting for the county. To- We're waiting for the county to accept the funds and launch the planning year. So if it wasn't for Dr. Sharon taking the trip, identifying the source of funds, identifying a consultant, you know, keeping the Board of Supervisors informed, we would not be where we are. And I won't have you dive into why you don't have the funds yet and you can't start the planning year, so we'll talk about that later. But I do want to talk about my trip to Trieste, though, really oh, yeah. quickly. Do you have time? Yeah. 11.58. So maybe we'll do five minutes. And, yeah. Okay. And then we can pick it up. Okay. Go ahead and give me the short version. So as I mentioned, when I decided I really wanted to be all in for this project, I gave my board six months' notice. And I uh, left my job on February 1st, 2019. And I had planned for months to spend a month in Trieste, embedded in their system. I needed a mental break, not only from having done this work for 22 years, stepping into this new space. And I thought, wow, what better opportunity than to actually go to work each day with people who are in their system and to try to fully understand their culture. How, how do they do this? Where does this come from? What, what is unique about the way they, they um, interact with users in their system. So that was like an amazing experience. I I studied Italian for about eight months just to kind of be able to greet people and order in a a restaurant (laughs) and be polite. But as I um, was so graciously accepted into their system, spending time at the hospital, going out on home visits, spending time with um, uh, users and talking uh, with folks and, and families and hanging out with the psychiatrists at the community mental health center and sitting in on staff meetings, what I found was a, they believe that there is a horizontal relationship between the, the clinician and the user or the social worker and the user. The American system is like this. I have this credential. I'm wearing this white jacket. I, I have a suggestion on what's going to make your life better. They're completely like this. And I can attest that that is exactly how they operate. It's human to human. And even they believe that people are not their diagnosis. Um, That people, what is more important for a person is their life plan. And then how do we help you achieve your life plan? So if your life plan is to learn to play the flute 
then you could have a psychiatrist spending 30 minutes strategizing about where can we get you a flute and how where could you have the lessons and what kind of music would you like to play and that would be the interaction and it it happened every single day and i was blown away at how simple and human and inexpensive it is to be in relationship with and in service to people with mental illness in your community we have lots more to talk about so Carrie, I know you have somewhere to be. Thank you so much for taking this first round with me. I really hope we have an opportunity to talk further. I would look forward to it. Yeah, I want to hear more about um, just the current team. Mm -hmm. Because the current team is the cohort that you took to Italy, right? Yeah, well then I took 39 more people back a few months ago. Oh yeah. my goodness, so yeah. we have so much to talk about. Yeah. Okay, yeah. great. Well, yeah. we'll do a follow-up okay. for now. Thank Very you. Thank you so much for joining me for today's episode. If you would like to be alerted to new episodes as they're published, be sure to subscribe to The Random People Show wherever you get your podcast. A big thanks to Max Diaz and his band Wires for the intro music and to CircuVision for the outro music. If you would like to recommend someone for the show, you can email us at hpimedia.com and put RPS in the subject line. Or you can post about them on Facebook or Instagram and tag or mention The Random People Show. I'll meet you in the next episode, and in the meantime, keep being curious.